Welcome to Indisputable. I'm Sharon Reed and for Dr. Rashad Ritchie who has the day off. Our co-host today is video content creator extraordinaire. Tizian joins us, um, you know his work well. And we'll see um, what he has to say about the eclectic mix of stories that we have on Indisputable today. We'll begin with a heartbreaking one, a gut-wrenching one really. Father recording video before dying in a construction fire. It's just, as I said, gut-wrenching and difficult to watch. Imagine being his loved ones. Facebook live stream at the scene of a devastating North Carolina fire showed two men trapped in the inferno, begging for help before they perished. Yo. I'm in South Park right now at work. The building on fire and I can't get out. It's getting harder and harder for them to see us. We're gonna have to stand out here and see. The building on fire, I'm trapped inside, me and my man. Yo, this building is on fire. I'm at work. Somebody said, hell, we're at South Park. Help! Demonte Tyree Sherrill, 30 years old, was one of two people who died on Thursday in that massive blaze in Charlotte. Sherrill was a father of four children, ages five to 13, his parents related. Firefighters tried to reach the two men. They heard their pleas, but had to abandon their own rescue attempt. His mother, Onita, told WSOC, I was hoping, but just from the Facebook Live and the way the room filled up with smoke, I didn't see it being any hope at that time. She said she felt numb and in shock following the horrific ordeal. He was a good man, a loving father, a caring person. And he just wanted to be with his children, his family. Reuben Holmes, age 58 of Alabama, was the other worker to die in the blaze, which broke out on the fourth floor of the building, which was still under construction. He was financially supporting himself and his mother in New York. Holmes was single, had no children of his own. Yet Tisha Holmes of New York, one of his nieces, said, he was the favorite uncle of the older kids, the uncle we could go to and talk about anything, no judgment, always loving and very giving. The incident happened at a multi-story building that was under construction after a spray insulation foam trailer on the ground floor suddenly ignited. And just look at the pictures there. According to Charlotte's fire, subsequent investigation. Crews were able to rescue 15 workers from the massive blaze that erupted at an under construction apartment complex. One of those rescued was trapped by the smoke in a high rise crane. More than 100 other workers escaped the flames as the building came crumbling down. GoFundMe 
page has now been set up to help raise funds for the father of four, which has raised so far $10,000. You see the GoFundMe there, it's growing. This is gut wrenching, as we said. And to know that these men desperately wanted help. And Tizian, I can't tell if based on their tone throughout this, because they seemed calm enough, I mean, urgent, if they thought it was going to work out. It seemed yeah. to me like they thought it was going to work out. Yeah, I, I agree. No, um, that's that's kind of the, the thing that, that sort of broke my heart the most the first time that I saw this, knowing that they had passed, is that it really did feel like they were saying, you know, hey, we're here, come get us, you know, and, and had hope that that could happen. Um, I, it's it's a thing, it's it's bizarre to me, like technology and the world we live in today. You know, it. I think they made a very seemingly smart decision to try and do that. Uh, in a way, at the very least, you know, their loved ones. I don't know if that's hard to. I would assume that's hard to watch, but I don't know if I was in that position. I feel like I'd still want to like hear, say, my father, you know, trying to talk to me, trying to communicate to me. Um, I assume the fact that they're just asking for help and it doesn't, you know, they don't say other things. They really did believe they were going to be helped. Um, but that, that's honestly, it's hard to watch. It, it's my, my heart is broken for that. Those families, it's it's families. And even for, you know, there's other people. The, I know the firefighters have to be devastated that they weren't able to access them, that they had to give up their efforts. I mean, that's what they do. It's it's heartbreaking literally all around. Yeah, you, you have on the one hand, this could have been the kind of thing that's not live stream and a family is wondering about the final moments. What happened? You know, investigations are good, but they don't tell us everything. But on the other hand, so alive in an instant, you almost want to just, that's your loved one. Any of us, pause it right there and know that they're alive right here. And in the next moment, if you let it play out, they're not. As I said, just gut wrenching. And I did, I did also think about those rescuers who had to know we got to get out of here because. It reminded me of 9-11, much smaller scale. But when you're talking about a building that's on fire and the danger that this could come crumbling down, get the call, you have to abandon this thing. you know. And they heard the voices, they knew who they were leaving behind. So it's just when I saw this, I said, oh my goodness, I'll give you the last word as the family tries to make some sense of this. Yeah, no. Um, I mean, what what good can you pull? I, I I don't know. I don't know how you you turn this into anything positive. I, I hate to say that. That's it's. I, I literally, when I say my heart breaks, I mean that in the most literal sense. I can't even imagine. Um, and the GoFundMe is just kind of, you know, I feel like it's in a way for people who hear it and are heartbroken by it to do something, but it doesn't bring back a father. It, it doesn't. It doesn't bring back all the moments that could have happened, that would have happened, that were lost, and I, I feel for them. Yeah, we'll keep following the investigation. We want to know about that instant, you know, ignition of that fire below, what caused it, and perhaps the family will have to turn their attention there. But as we said, our, our thoughts go out to them. And there's this one, um, the worst nightmare in the air, if you think about it. Asiana flight passenger opening the door while still 
in the air to the horror of other passengers. Passenger aboard an Asiana Airlines flight opened the emergency door moments before the plane landed. 194 passengers were met with harsh gust of wind at that altitude, 700 feet. Suspect was identified as a man in his 30s who admitted to opening the door, but refrained from telling the reasoning behind it. Why did you do this? It's crazy to think about why someone would do this, admit to it, and then not tell the whole story. But let's show you some of this video because it is just, you're all struck when you see it. So some of the passengers tried to prevent the person from reaching the door, but it did partially open, sending air whipping through the cabin as terrified flyers gripped their armrests, holding on for dear life. Among the 194 passengers on board, several teenage athletes were among them, who were on their way to a weekend sporting event in Olson. That from the New York Post. At least a dozen people suffered minor injuries stemming from the incident. The plane was able to land safely. However, several passengers showed symptoms of breathing difficulty and they had to be transported to a nearby hospital. It was chaos with people close to the door appearing to faint one by one and flight attendants calling out for doctors on board through broadcasting. Passenger told the local news outlet, I thought the plane was blowing up. I thought I was going to die like this, 44 year old added. One teen's mother told the news outlet, children quivered and cried in panic. Those sitting in the exit must have been shocked the most, and there's more. Witnesses told local media that the unhinged passenger also tried to jump out of the plane. It is difficult to have a normal conversation with him, an official said, according to the BBC. We will investigate the motive of the crime and punish him. So I watch that, I don't know if it's a channel, but they have marathons, air disasters, real air disasters that they retell the story reenactments. This is so real and horrific that I wanna get your impression of what you think would go through your mind if you're on board that flight and dealing with that chaos. Even at 700 feet, people sneeze at that. That's incredible to think about going through in the air and not knowing the outcome. No, uh, I mean, <laughs> the first story, I mean, being trapped in a building and it on fire. Um, that's, I'm like, that's terrifying, that's my new nightmare. And then there's this story and I'm like, that's terrifying, that's my new nightmare. I, I travel a lot. Um, and just the idea of someone doing that on a flight that I'm on, I, <laughs> it, yeah, no, it is it is terrifying. Um, I think I would be the person who is trying to restrain them and get a hold of them. But as people said, they did try to do that. He just kind of got to the door and got it open. And then there's the aspect of he was also trying to jump out. So it feels like, you know, once the door opened and there's this chaos, then you've also got this person who is fighting you. 
and trying to jump out as you're trying to restrain them. It's pandemonium. Um, you know, you have a lack of oxygen in the cabin, which is likely why a lot of people passed out. You know, officials are saying they don't really know why he did it. And he's difficult to talk to. That's that's the telling part to me. It's difficult to get information out of him. He he does not seem like he's in his right mind. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, someone who opens that door and then tries to jump out is not in a good mental space. Um, so hopefully he can receive help. But I, I can't imagine that most of those people who are on that flight will ever fly again. Right, and who can blame them? And one of the things that jumps out at me is, is exactly what you were just talking about. We don't know for sure, but there are all indications that there is um, someone unstable and some emotional regulation that needs to take place. So my next thing is, you're not gonna be able to prevent this. How do you prevent something like this? And no wonder, you're probably right. People would say, I'm out tapping out of the flying thing at any altitude. Um, Perhaps they could shore up the door, but you want a door to open to the end. If you're trying to get out because the worst has happened and you need to escape. So I, it just seems like there's no way to prevent this from happening again. No, that is the catch 22, like the door has to open. You have to be able to open the door and get out of the plane in an emergency situation. Um, and, and someone, even if someone is acting odd, I'm on flights all the time with people who are acting odd. You can't like bar them from the right. flight simply acting a little off. I mean, just flying is stressful and can make people act off. So. You keep an eye on them. Like I, I don't think there's necessarily a solution because it's not like keeping people from bringing a weapon on that they can harm someone. Anyone has a hand that can open a door. You can't keep them from having that. Welcome back to Indisputable. I'm Sharon Reed, in for Dr. Rashad Ritchie. Tizian, the extraordinary. Uh, video content creator joins us today as our co-host. Let's get some viewer comments because that block was a lot, okay? That first block where we had two just harrowing stories. One that didn't work out, the construction workers who died in a fire. And then you had that mid-air door opening incident where a passenger decided, you know what? I think once in fresh air, maybe I'll try to jump out. TYT member Greyhound Dragon has this to say, about the father recording that video before dying in the construction fire. That is absolutely heartbreaking to watch. Imagine the family, wow. The Asiana flight passenger opening that door while still in the air, Cats and Dragons says, now I really don't wanna fly. I already have severe anxiety every time I'm in the air. And that's it for me too, Tizian, because I don't know if I'm the only one, but every time I get on a plane, I, I fly a lot, whatever. But it always goes through my mind. I always think like, what could happen? Maybe just a, a passing thing that I try to push it out. Um, and I wonder about you. Does that? Am I the only one? No, I, I travel a lot, and um, I have had at least uh, you know a small handful of situations where someone was acting weird on a flight, mm. and I definitely was giving them a, a bombastic side eye, keeping an eye on them, and like if they like got up and like there's the doors. And the front, like if they're gonna ready walk to pounce. Front, yeah, I was like, no, nah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like we're we're not uh, we're not doing this. I, I'm gonna land and go home tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, I must say, nothing has ever happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but no, that is 
that is the thing Like you see that and you go like, yeah, that's the thing that um, I think everyone who travels at least has that creep into their mind once or twice. I can't imagine that you don't. And after hearing this story, I'll give you one more comment. Winter Scoop says, I was under the assumption that those doors couldn't open mid flight. I guess now we know otherwise, okay? There are times where the doors have to open and you know, but I'd prefer for those times to be when you're escaping after you know, you're on the ground, you know, or maybe in the water like Sully Sullenberg, but not this at 700 feet altitude, not this one. We'll get more comments after a bit, but I do want to move on to this one because there's local news reporter who is calm under pressure. But it's an understatement really when you think about what went down during this live shot, a drive by shooting occurred in the middle of it, right in the middle of an interview. Camera footage shows the dramatic moment. A woman being interviewed for a local Memphis television broadcast about how to reduce crime in the area of all things. And then suddenly she's forced to get down and stay down as a drive by shooting took place right across the street. Whitehaven community leader Yolanda was about to discuss the city's plans to step up enforcement of the teenage curfew this summer when suddenly, yeah, a spate of gunfire went off as she introduced herself to the camera, which sent her and the television crew diving for cover. Dramatic moment was caught on video released by local Memphis news station ABC 24. And we can tell you no one was hurt in this. Police though are yet to make any arrests. Now in the clip, Yolanda can be seen spelling out her name before loud gunfire can be heard across the street. She quickly ducks down and the camera is seen shaking before she tells the crew to get down immediately. Get down, just stay down, get down, she says. Yolanda is then heard saying, it's okay, thank you, Lord Jesus. Just stay down and get down. She then asks the crew, are they coming back? The crew member is heard catching his breath and Yolanda reassures him, you're okay, James? And adds, thank you, Lord, for the blood of Jesus that covers us. Thank you, Father, for the blood of Jesus. Moments after the gunfire stop, Yolanda gets back to her feet and says, all right, we should be all right. She then confirms whether it was a drive by with a crew member who agrees. Yep, you saw the black car, she said. The incident happened at 11 a.m. in a parking lot between Whitehaven Community Center and Rains Family Park. Shooter was targeting an apartment complex across the street and Yolanda and the crew were not harmed. Memphis police responded to the incident immediately, but no arrests as we said have been made thus far. That from the Daily Mail. Apartment announced in April that it would be setting out to more strictly enforce the curfew ordinance for children introduced back in 1996. It states that those under 16 and under cannot be out past 10 p.m. between Sunday and Thursday. And this extends to 11 p.m. on Friday and Saturday. 17 year olds are allowed to be out an hour longer than others. City of Memphis issued a public service announcement on May 18th reminding parents, keep an eye on your kids. It posted a social media video asking when it's 10 p.m. do you know where your children are? Memphis police will take kids found breaking the curfew to precincts or have their parents called to pick them up where an officer finds them. It's not clear when the enforcement will start, but 
It is believed it will begin around June. So there you have it. The fact that Yolanda popped up and kind of just said, okay, we should be good. Tells us something about the state of things perhaps on these Memphis streets. I don't know though that, and I don't have the statistics, it's just a gut to the end. But I don't know that a curfew on kids is is going to be the only answer here or the answer at all. Yeah, it doesn't. Um... It doesn't feel like it's a solution. It feels like maybe it's a Band-Aid on a really big wound. Um, I mean, the important thing is, you know, they're all okay. But the way that she handled it so pragmatically says everything about how involved she is in that community and how it is an issue. Like she was the one saying, everyone get down. Like she knew what to do. This is not the first time she's heard gunfire or had to deal with this. And when you have someone like that who's speaking out, who's saying like we have a problem here, I mean, curfew something. What what else needs to be done? You have community members who are telling you we have a problem. We need help. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, I, I I think yeah, um, I think it's it's just a a, a temporary um, show of you know like we're yeah. doing something that doesn't necessarily have real world impact. Yeah, some of it felt like semantics to me. Like the police have a, it's about to be a hot summer in Memphis. So we gotta make a big show. We'll put out PSA, we'll pull out the old, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago. Do you know where your children are You know, on the news? And that's not gonna get it done. People need real services. Maybe they need summer jobs, make more summer jobs available, who knows? They're everywhere and they are the gift that keeps giving. I wish you Karen would. You wanna call the police on them for having a barbecue on a and Sunday. You're I feel great, back off. I'm gonna tell them there's an African American man threatening my life. Leave. No. I'm gonna let you react first because that one floored me in its overt violence. Yeah, um, I, I saw this the day that it got posted and um, I was enraged. Uh, I will say, not that it makes it any better at all. Uh, it looks like he slaps her in the face. Uh, she ended later stating he slapped her hand. Um, still, like not, not nothing about that interaction was okay. Nothing about his behavior is in any way justified. He did all that over scratches on a countertop. He didn't like that there were scratches on a countertop that he believed she had made. And he thought it was okay to act and speak that way toward her because he didn't see her as being someone that deserved respect, quite frankly. Um, what was equally upsetting to me was how after you know myself and others called attention to that video and uh, the police got upset and put out a statement saying like, hey, he was arrested. She acted like he wasn't arrested, he was arrested. Yeah, he got a citation. Mm-hmm. Like that yes, part. technically that's an arrest, but there's no mugshot. He wasn't put in cuffs. He got to go home that night and you know eat dinner in his home. He got a notice that he has to appear. 
And if nothing else, you did not communicate with the victim that he was arrested for that. She still felt threatened. She still felt like nothing happened, like what happened to her did not matter. And that is a problem. Yeah, because it didn't matter. And not only did the perp not see her as a human being, I don't care what she did. What the, are you kidding me? Okay, didn't slap her in the face, slapped her hand. I don't, it looked and was violent, you're right. And the police didn't see her either. The police could really care less. I don't know why someone wouldn't, I think that's a dangerous person. That's a dangerous person running around in society. And we need to put out a bolo, that's what they should have done. And find that person and take them down, cuff them and let's get them off the streets. Cuz I don't know who he's gonna hit next. That, I was enraged too, that's honestly how I felt to the end. Yeah, I will say this, that he was a general contractor for that building. The ownership of the building found out about the incident because people like myself posted it online. And as soon as they found out, they terminated his contract. They were happy to do, they, they, they had zero tolerance for it. And I'm like, that should be the reaction. That should be the reaction from everyone, from law enforcement on down. That is not okay, we cannot as a society Accept that, period. Yeah, I think it's so serious that we need more details about who responded, what was said, how they went about their business. But I think it's so serious that if I'm leadership in this police department, there needs to be consequences here, okay? And I need to understand what you don't understand <laughs> about laws and comporting yourself in a fashion that's acceptable to people. Because this was so egregious that there there can be no other way to see it. It, it is just me, I don't think so. She earned praise, we loved her when she was thrust onto the national stage. The Florida school though is banning a poem read at the Biden inauguration. After the objection of just one parent, the poem that Amanda Gorman, remember her? Recited at President Joe Biden's inauguration has been banned from elementary schools across Miami-Dade County, Florida. The poem was beautiful, remember? Miami Herald reporting that the poem, which is titled The Hills We Climb, was removed from the K through five curriculum in the county after a local parent, Daly Salinas, challenged it as inappropriate for students. In addition to Corman's poem, Salinas also challenged four other books, the ABCs of Black History, Cuban Kids, Countries in the News, Cuba, and Love to Langston for what she claimed were filled with indirect hate messages inspired by critical race theory. Salinas tells the Miami Herald that she's not in favor of censorship, <clears throat> but she instead wants students to know the truth about Cuba with accurate reading materials. That said, she also complained that the district had left the books she objected to available for middle school students, as she claimed they were inappropriate for all ages. Director of Research and Insight at Florida Freedom to Read Project, Stefania Farrell said that the nature of the books being challenged in the country shows that there's a concerted effort to target books that address ethnicities, 
marginalized communities, racism or our history of racism. It seems to me, Dr. Messel, that people don't even understand critical race theory. It's just the cool thing to throw out there. And they don't understand what is perhaps and is not hate directly or indirectly. I mean, in this case, let's be honest, it's not just about the poem, it's about the poet, right? How dare mm-hmm. a young black woman speak this way in such a national forum for what is an incredibly aspirational poem, right? This was an inauguration poem that was a call to human betterment. And so this is really just terrifying on so many levels. First, of course, is just the power that these small small number of people have. I mean, there was a story in the, I think, Post or Times the other day that only 12 or 13 people in Florida are, are behind most of the requests for the book bans. And so when you kind of try to ban something that fits the ideology about like, let's not learn about history or anything critical or aspirational or unifying, it gets a lot of play. And so the fact that one parent is gonna do this and that we're even talking about it, I find really, really upsetting because where does that lead us, right? It's not just gonna be school libraries, it's gonna be movies and television shows and newspapers, right? This is a really slippery slope. If if these kind of dominant messages get so much airtime, it really leads us down a place that, um, that, that is so antithetical to the version of the United States that many people assume and have, have grown up with. And then the flip side, of course, is that as a liberal person, I am not a, not in any way in favor of any bans. I don't think there should be any bans on any books. We should have everything out there and, and debate it. But what about when a black parent says, well, I don't want this poem by a white poet by a white poet or this is too conservative for me or it's hateful or something like that. Are they gonna then ban that? I, I really doubt it. And so again, the things that are being banned are are supporting a particular ideology, which is an incredibly problematic and slippery slope for our country. Yeah, and I want to seize upon what you were talking about when you when you mentioned, and we're almost out of time for this segment, about so few being able to inflict so much really because and perhaps this is not something that you can relate the two different subjects but to me it's it's the same as this whole gun debate because you have most Americans if we believe the polling saying we want reasonable things done here but you have a powerful few or fewer much fewer saying nope nothing to see and we're not going to do anything yeah, it's really the definition of minority rule. I mean, I think that, again, these numbers on who's calling for book bans and the result of it, these voices are being used in, 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 in the service of an ideology. Missing something upstairs, okay? And perhaps that's been said before about Don Jr., Donald Trump Jr., who accidentally insults his father. I mean, that's what it says. You either insult Trump on purpose or you don't if you're his namesake. Donald Trump Jr. made an unfortunate mix up <laughs> on his online show triggered with Don Jr. Happened on Thursday. Don Jr. accidentally swapping his father's name with that of his 2024 opponent, Ron DeSantis. <laughs> the gaffe came during a rant about the Florida governor's D. Disaster 
Twitter Spaces campaign launch. Don Jr. took aim at DeSantis for basically reading like an op-ed what he was going to do. But just minutes into his speech declaring DeSantis's failure to launch, Trump Jr. appeared to mix up his own words. Watch and listen. Policy grounds or personality. Trump has the charisma of a mortician and the energy that makes Jeb Bush look like an Olympian. The policies of a DC swamp rat, because we've seen, we've seen the flip flops, right? You can. So he heard it. He knows he messed up. We saw the pause for a moment after the mix up. But Don Jr. continued on. Later claiming DeSantis is a flip-flopper who continues to dodge questions about his stance on Ukraine. Don Jr. also ripped DeSantis for his nasal and effeminate voice, claiming it was that bad. That reporting from the Daily Beast. Of course, the online blowback was swift, social media users calling out the awkwardness of it all. With some users claiming Jr. is rattled because of the special counsel investigation into his father. Others indicating his inner feelings are emerging and that he said the quiet part out loud. I agree with that second Twitter user Tizian. I don't think that it's a mistake. I think your inner voice is emerging here and it's a problem if your last name is Trump. Yeah, Freudian slip, it would seem. <laughs> um, I think what's funny to me about that, or the more troubling part is, like you notice that he paused. I, I think he he felt he did something wrong or mm. said something wrong, but still didn't process that he had said what he said. That's more troubling to me. Yeah. The fact that he said that and went and didn't go like, I, not my dad, DeSantis. <laughs> the mm -hmm. fact that he just Corrected. Like pulled right through it. Yeah, like. <laughs> Sure, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pretend that didn't happen and continued on is um, laughable, um, but at the same time terrifying because again this is his father is running for president again and could be the president again and this you know he's one of the people that his father surrounds himself with. It's all just it's a if, problem. We didn't, if we didn't see it happen, we wouldn't believe it. Right, it's a problem. And to be so animated, the tone, the tone, you know, he's got this whole shtick he does. It's very animated, but it lacks the chops. It's fake passion. As a local news anchor, I always could tell the difference between those of us who were reading, just reading somebody. Remember the movie Anchor Man? Okay, you're just reading anything could be in front of you, and you're going to say it because you're not thinking. It's just whatever I see. It's gonna come right out. And that's how I felt about Don Jr. It was foolishness. This is the president's son. Okay, for once, we might agree with you. <laughs> Much more indisputable when we come right back. Welcome back to Indisputable. I'm Sharon Reed in for Dr. Rashad Ritchie. And joining us as special co-host today, Tizzy Ant. Uh, video content creator extraordinaire. Uh, quite a few stories are sparking comments online. Let's give you a few of them. TYT member Mo Fury says this about the drive-by shooting that occurred right in the middle of a local news interview. Curfews 
are reactions. They do nothing to address the reason for clearing the streets. It's like saying a cigarette smoker can only smoke in the daylight hours. They're still going to get cancer. It's semantics, okay? We don't know how to end this violence on these Memphis streets. So we'll just announce a curfew with the young people. And by the way, you can shoot at nine o'clock, 10 o'clock as well, but okay. YouTube member has this to say about the same story. Theo, the irony is a whole trip. That it it really is. It really is. Um, about Donald Trump Jr. accidentally insulting his father. There's a lot of insults there, not just one word. Cynthia Moon says, I think this got him kicked off the will. Does he have all that money anyway? Okay, who knows? And then all Junior did was say what he really felt. The dumbness doesn't fall far from the dummy, that from the lying truth. And one more about that construction worker that enraged Tizzy, enraged me too. TYT member Toolman1051 says, yes, terminate his contract. I ran construction crews and never treated anyone badly. That was, and then some badly, and then some, and it's traumatic. I think of the trauma that that, that woman on the job site had to face in the aftermath. Let's give you an update now. Mother of a teenager in city bike video speaks out. The teen involved city bike viral video along with his mother spoke to News One to give their side of the story. Family's reluctance to speak out. Mary and Michael are eager to talk to Monique Judge of News One. Betty, their mother, is reluctant to let Michael speak with anyone. He's only 17 years old. He's my baby, Betty says. He's a senior in high school. He should be planning to attend his prom and looking forward to walking the stage at his graduation in a few weeks. But instead, he and his family have spent the last week and a half living in turmoil. Michael is the teen in the infamous city bike video with Sarah Jane Comrie. Again, the reporting from News One. Now the teens account of the incident. Michael said after resting in Harlem for a bit, the boys continued riding into the lower east side of Manhattan. They grabbed frozen yogurt and then headed to the city bike docking station at First Avenue and East 30th Street near Bellevue Hospital in the Kipps Bay neighborhood. They docked their bikes at 7:19 p.m. and sat there to rest. Michael insisted he and his friends never left the bikes unattended. They don't leave the bikes. Michael said all four of his friends also have the same city bike reduced fare membership. So they docked the bikes to stop the timers from going over 45 minutes. Four of the boys were sitting on their bikes as they rested, but Michael was standing next to his with his hands on the handlebars. They were there for a few minutes when he said Sarah Jane Comrie approached their group. She initially asked one of Michael's friends if she could take the bike he was resting on. He politely declined, informing her that they were going to be leaving shortly and using the bikes again. She next approached a different boy in the group and asked him the same thing. That boy also politely declined. Michael was still standing near his bike with his hands on the handlebars. According to Michael, Sarah Jane Comrie asked him, can I please have this bike? Michael said he declined. No, I'm about to take it back out, he told her. Michael said Sarah Jane Comrie then said to him, I'm pregnant. Can you help a pregnant woman out? 
Michael said he then told her, I'm sorry, ma'am, I've ridden this bike all the way from the Bronx and I need this bike to go back home. Michael says that is when Sarah Jane Comrie moved closer to him and his bike leaned over him and scanned the QR code with her phone, even as he had his hands on the handlebars. She then pushed her way onto the bike and attempted to remove it from the docking station and take it. It was 7.24 PM and that is when the boys began recording. Rest of the interaction plays out in the video. Sarah Jane Comrie dressed in scrubs, bearing the NYC Health Plus Hospital's logo, removed her work ID badge from her neck, placed it in her bag along with a brown paper bag she was holding and began screaming for help. The boys can be heard repeatedly telling her it's not her bike. During the film part of the interaction, Michael was able to successfully push the bike back into the dock. He said he then entered the bike's number into his phone to put the reservation back on his account. Michael said when Sarah Jane Comrie noticed him doing this, she snatched his phone out of his hand, which is shown in that video. Michael's story directly contradicts the narrative that Justin Marino, the employment attorney representing Sarah Jane Comrie, gave in a statement he wrote to the New York Post. Marino originally made public redacted alleged receipts, but as of Wednesday, his apparent Twitter account posted the unredacted receipt showing Sarah Jane Comrie had rented the bike for one minute at 7.24. Family provided News One receipts for the city bike purchases. They show he originally rented the bike at 5.53 PM. He returned it after his final ride at 10.12 PM, each of the receipts he sent for review shows him riding the bike in intervals of 45 minutes or less, redocking the bike and then taking it out again a short time later. Things turned worse for the teen once Marino put a statement out in the media. When those receipts got released, everything flipped, Michael said. People started calling me a thief, a thug, and a black man. It's definitely having an effect on me, he continued. It's just like, wow, this is crazy, Michael added. She did something wrong and she basically got rewarded for it. She's made over $100,000 on a GoFundMe. She got all the white conservatives on her side. Everyone who was on my side has just kind of stayed silent. Tizzy, why wouldn't they? This is America. Look at your life, America, okay? It seems pretty clear. But there's this mountain of evidence that black youth, black boys, black young men have to climb, it seems, when a certain type persuasion points the finger. What say you? Um, yeah, I've been a part of this story since the beginning. Uh, I've been talking to his sister since last week. Um, and that is the issue. I mean, I can't speak for anyone else. I can only say myself, I made a video initially about that video and it had nothing to do with a stolen bike. I didn't care about a stolen bike. That was not what I saw that alarmed me. What I saw that alarmed me was the response to him, her screaming help like that and pointing out, this is dangerous. This gets young black men killed, a la Emmett Till, don't do this. And then receipts came and a narrative came and a press push came that vilified him and suddenly, he was a thug and he was a thief and he and his friends were intimidating a young pregnant woman. 
And no one bothered to talk about the fact that he was a 17 year old high school kid who acted more like an adult in that video in my opinion than she did. And then like he said, no one was sharing his story. No one was being a voice for him, it seemed. And then now we have his receipts and we have his you know, words about what happened. What's crazy to me is that's what we have from both sides of this. We have receipts and we have a claim of how it went down and we have receipts and we have a claim of how it went down. One is not more or less you know, believable than the other. I personally see enough of his story that makes sense than I do with the other. Yet there's a whole group of people I've seen who took her word as gospel and say he is a liar automatically before they've even really reviewed anything. While she is literally paying PR firms to put out op-ed pieces. And I'm, assume, I'm assuming she's paying them because why else is that happening? But there was a piece in USA Today that was an op-ed piece by a man who works and founded Proven Media Solutions, painting a picture that she has been vilified falsely, etc. And I understand that it's it's damage control and it's something to try and help with her appearance in the media and so forth and to save her job. That's why she has an employment attorney. But whether on purpose or not, it makes that young man collateral damage. Beautiful, couldn't have said it better. And that's the truth. What you just laid out are series of facts, just the facts. Here's what we know and here's the reaction to it. And yes, there are people who are willing to not just take her word as gospel. What makes her word more important than these young people? What what makes her word gospel? Well, America teaches him, you don't matter, okay? Sometimes it all certainly is much. And there are people who don't care about the facts you just eloquently laid out. Because the facts don't help them. The facts don't matter to them. They want to be proactive and they want to rewrite history sometimes and paint a picture and fit people into a box. A box for her, and you can figure out what that box means and supports, and a box for him. And he's already verbalized what that means. For him, I don't know as the mother of a black child, if you can have enough talks to keep people safe. But one of the things, Tizzy, that you said that I I need people to understand, it's not hyperbole. This kind of thing gets black young men killed, okay? It did in the 50s. And it does today, and it's not a game, and it's not a PR campaign. It's actually about life and breathing, surviving. Yeah, and, and I'll give you the rest. Yeah, no, and I mean, I've seen people ask, why did those boys start recording? Because they knew that, because they knew that behavior like that gets them killed, gets them arrested. They knew they were in danger and they pulled out a phone and started recording to protect themselves. And then what does he see? He sees a ton of people donating thousands of dollars to her, she raised over $100,000 on a GoFundMe. Good news is 
Myself and others encouraged that family to post a GoFundMe. They have, they finally did yesterday afternoon. They've raised over $50,000 so far. And I wow. hope that, that continues to happen because uh, every interaction that I've had with them, they are sweet, kind, huh? loving people who never even wished ill will on her. He just had worked very hard to find a bike. He had the bike, his hands are on the bike and he wanted to keep, he needed to get home. He literally needed the bike and then it turned into something else. What should have been a simple dispute or conversation or disagreement between two people turned into something much bigger and then has been used to paint a picture of him as something else. And he's now has to defend himself mm-hmm. for simply going out on a ride with his friends and wanting to get home. And if we can, we're gonna move on, but it's that defend, that defend word that you use. There was an incident and I happen to agree with you. You're not always gonna see it somebody else's way. You can figure this out and move on peacefully. But one person left that confrontation, we'll call it, on their toes. And the other one was perhaps flat footed at first, but then definitely on their heels, so much so that they weren't thinking about PR campaigns or even as you mentioned initially, a GoFundMe. Didn't even think they perhaps had the right. And I think that's very telling too. It's at least tells about the perceptions of different people in this America. And I think we gotta continue to pay attention to it. Wow, and I hope you'll keep following it and keep bringing us the updates as you are able to speak to the sister. And others, perhaps it's an important one. A mother claims school has racially segregated classes. This one comes out of Atlanta and it's an ongoing case. In Atlanta, Keila Posey, Maryland Elementary School parent filed a school segregation complaint against her daughter's school district. And now federal civil rights office will investigate. The incident began in 2021 when Posey requested a specific teacher for her daughter. Lots of parents do that. But Posey claimed principal Sharon Briscoe told her the class was not one of the two second grade classes designated for black students. And her contract for an after school program she runs was not renewed after she complained about segregated classes reported. The Atlanta Journal Constitution. She informed me via email that she was not renewing my contract, Posey said. No reason, no anything. Both Posey and Briscoe are black, and about 10% of students at Mary Lynn are also black. And Posey filed a retaliation complaint after her business, called the club, did not have its contract renewed for services she provides after school at several Atlanta public schools. Hmm. The details from the raw story. The US Education Department's Office for Civil Rights confirmed it was investigating a retaliation complaint filed by Posey, but did not offer any additional details. It's also investigating whether the school violated Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which blocks federal funding for school districts that discriminate on the basis of race. Posey also claimed. Mary Lynn reassigned her husband, Jason Posey, who worked there as a school psychologist to work remotely 
after filing the segregation complaint. He now works for another school system and their children now attend a private school. This is messy, Tizzy. I have experience in the Atlanta Public School District and it's a great experience. It's a terrific experience. I have met and interacted with Mr. Posey. It's great, certainly qualified. And then there's this one, a black mom, a black principal. Mary Lynn is a great school, a proven school. Like a lot of cities, not all the public schools are great. How do we reconcile this one, Tizzy? How do we sort it out when you have perhaps on the one side a black principal who believes firmly she's doing the right thing and having girls of color support each other in the classroom? And a mother saying, no, no, I've heard great things about this teacher and that's who I'd like for my daughter. Parents do that all the time. It's their right, their children. School doesn't always have to listen, but how do we reconcile this one? I, you know, the, the part that is troubling about the story is the fact that they're looking into the retaliation claim, but there seemed to be no mention of the other aspect of this. I mean, I can only speak from my experiences. My son, when he was in elementary school, when he first started that school, um, they had boys only and girls only classes. Mm. And their theory was there's data that shows that, especially at that age, boys learn differently from girls. So they believed we can focus on teaching girls one specific way and boys another. They have mixed lunches, they have mixed recess, etc. One parent was like, that's that's segregation, that's not okay. I don't want my child not having classroom experiences with the other. And that was it, it was done. It was the, the state said, you gotta change that, you gotta put them in classes together and they did. My son did very well in class when he was segregated. He did very well in class huh. when he had girls in class with him too. I saw no difference in his learning or his education experience. So I have to go, seems like keeping everyone and treating everyone equally seems to be the right way to go. Certainly didn't seem to be detrimental. When you start getting into like you know, racial connotations with that too, we're, we're dipping our toes back into some, some very, very, Unfortunate waters in our past when you're starting to do that. And I, I I can't imagine that that is going to remain and be allowed to continue. Yeah, I mean, the best intentions. Right. You know, the way you laid that out, even the best intentions, it's more than a slippery slope. And APS, they've got to be listening now and perhaps have already begun to take the action. We'll see, this is indisputable. Tiziana is our special co-host today, wealth of information, wealth of commentary, video content creator extraordinaire. We're right back with much more indisputable. Doc has the day off. Welcome back to indisputable, on with Tizian, who is our extraordinary co-host today. And Tizian, I gotta tell you, the comments are blowing up and the bulk of them, are about that city bike incident. Let's go through a few. TYT member Ojam says, this city bike story is so hard to parse, but I think those fake tears of hers, once that white guy showed up, might be revealing. 
Night Eater says, acted like a Karen. So if this is true, it's not surprising. Jackson Jackson says, listen, if you're holding a bike and you say no, like it's over. We're not about to have a screaming match over a damn bike, okay? But apparently someone wasn't gonna take no for an answer, but I think you're right. And you can chime in if you want real quick, Tizzy. This, yeah. Who cares about the bike, okay? Like, this is too far. Yeah, like, like, listen, I've had a ton of people who live in New York, cuz it is kind of a New York thing, the city bike thing. This idea of people keeping a bike, after 45 minutes you get charged extra. So it's very common for people to have a bike all day, click it into the dock, then take it back out. That's super common. Again, all of these other details, all this other stuff that's hard to parse through. Mm-hmm. It's it's only about the behavior. Yeah. All this other stuff seems irrelevant to me. This started as why are you behaving that way? I think it ends with that as well. Yeah. You keep your eye on what it's really about here. Eleven year old boy called 911 to save his mom is instead shot by cops. Watch. Darian Murray, who is black, had called 911 to report a domestic disturbance. His family's attorney says he was trying to protect his mother. The Washington Post reports that Murray followed the police officer's commands and had his hands up, but was still shot in the chest. Officials in Indianola have voted to place the police officer on paid administrative leave while the case is investigated by the state. After Adarian rounded that corner, met the police officer, he was shot one time in the chest where he collapsed to the ground. Apparently, after being shot, he was screaming, what did I do wrong? Why was I shot? According to medical officials, he suffered a collapsed lung, a lacerated liver, several broken ribs, was rushed to the hospital where he was then put on a ventilator. But the silver lining in all of this, in this terrible story is that he apparently has been soldiering through treatments at the hospital and just a day ago was treated at the hospital and released back to the custody of his family. He's doing okay. Uh, The mother spoke about what kind of blessing this was that her family got through this. Listen to this. He's blessed. I don't know how else to describe it, how else to describe how he survived. That's the only thing I can say that he was blessed. Um, he have a lot of questions. He asked me in the hospital, like why they shot him. He was in good spirit, but every now and then I look over at him and, and he'll just cry. There is not only police body cam video, but also unreleased gas station security cam video that has not been shown to the public yet. This little boy's picture alone um, makes me weak. I look at the flannel shirt, that innocent face. How innocent is he now? Nicola Murray had instructed 11 year old Aldarian to call the police for help as the father of another one of her kids became increasingly hostile. That officer he called for arrived and instead shot Aldarian. Darian's family is now being represented by Carlos Moore, attorney now on this case. Moore has exposed the officer, Sergeant Greg Capers on social media. Moore filed a request with police to release the footage, but was denied due to an ongoing investigation. Moore confirmed that the Indiana 
in the Enola board, rather, Volderman voted to place Capers on paid administrative leave. This man not only deserves to be terminated, but he needs to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law, Moore said during a press conference. I go back to the before and after Tizzy, because before this horrific life endangering close call shooting, this boy and his mother believed they could call the police and get help. That's the, that's the worst part for me, the fact that he, he saw something that he felt was a threat to him and his mother. And that he went to the people he's supposed to go to for help. He went to the police, he called the police to come help. And then even then when they came, you know, and they're giving instructions, he like understood. They don't know that I'm the good guy and there's a bad guy. I'm gonna come out with my hands up, I'm gonna do what I'm told. And then he gets shot. And I think it goes back to something that I say with a lot of these incidents. There's an old expression, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And time and time and time again, it feels that way with police involved shootings. Like the go to default is shoot. They call for a mental health check or for a wellness check, someone gets shot. It's like too many people programmed to believe going into every situation, I need to be ready to shoot or else I'm going to die. And they have their hammer and everybody looks like a nail and they just start swinging. And this young man got shot as a result. Thank God he is alive, that could have been worse. But will he ever trust the police again? Will he ever call them for help again? I have no idea. I don't either, and I'm reminded of an officer in Cleveland. You said their program, so are we. Too many of us are programmed to believe that this is good policing and just doing what they're supposed to do to protect. There was an officer in Cleveland who had shot so many and received awards for it. We gotta do better. I hope that little boy continues to recover. We'll move on with an update. Representative Jeff McNeely loses leadership role. Jeff McNeely, the North Carolina representative who was under fire last week for making controversial comments, has now resigned from the leadership position in his caucus. In case you forgot, here it is. Representative Jones, I want to ask you the question is, I understand that you went into public school and you went to Harvard and Harvard Law. And the question I guess is, uh, would you have been able to maybe achieve this if you were not an athlete or a minority? I'm hoping I wasn't the only one that got shocked by that comment that the only reason you went to Harvard is because you were black and an athlete. I did not say that. I said, would that, did that end up being one of the reasons? I do not know that. I asked okay. him this. Right. I'm just going to say one thing. Harvard had five rankings for their students. One, two, three, four, five. And when I graduated from Harvard, I was in rank two. So I earned my place. And I did well. Be yeah. applause there, Tizzy. But I gotta be honest with you. And I'll go through the rest of this. But I want to pause here. I get it, but that pained me. The, the the fact that he felt he even had to answer and justify his credentials, his smarts. It it really ticks me off. 
What what is that man's credentials? The man mm. asking the question. Where did he go to school? Thank What's you. his education background? I, I'm just curious. I'm just asking. I'll answer when you answer. Is what yeah. you should have told him. <laughs> right. far, I mean, as far as the update goes, bye. Mm-hmm. So long, good riddance. Uh, I'm glad to hear that at least was the outcome. But this happens way too often. This is far too common. I, you know, people trying to play the card of like, uh, you know, oh, you only got what you got because, or is that, or let me raise my eyebrow and question you. It's it. It's unacceptable. It needs to remain unacceptable. People gonna learn one way or the other, hard way, it seems, with this gentleman. You're gonna have to learn today. And I'll say this, these people are pushing a fake narrative that we're so used to in America and globally today. Because I went to Georgetown University. I love the school, okay, whatever. You could send a few less of those requests for money, Georgetown. But other than that, I don't have a ton of complaints. But there were a lot of people who were legacy students, okay? Just the way it works. So to point to this black athlete taking, that's the connotation. You're taking what doesn't belong to you. It by birthright belongs to someone other than you. It's stunning. But McNeely isn't the only one resigning. Representative Keith Kidwell is out of a job too. He was heard by a WRAL reporter making a joke about the Church of Satan, while Democratic Representative Diamond Staten Williams was giving a speech about her faith during the abortion debate. And according to Staten Williams, he still is yet to apologize. Both reps Jeff McNeely of Stony Point and Keith Kidwell of Chaco Winitti held deputy whip positions in the House Republican Caucus and both made controversial comments last week. During that House floor debate over private school scholarships, McNeely, who is white, asked Representative Abe Jones, who is black, if he got into Harvard, as you heard, because he was a minority or athlete. Jones responded to the racist line of questioning with his academic record and accepted McNeely's apology. Republican House Majority Leader John Bell announced the resignations during a non-voting House session on Thursday morning. Um, The resignations are appropriate. I'm surprised they happen because when you have this flawed thinking and you actually say the quiet part out loud because you don't even know it's wrong. That's what we just saw on that footage there. That's actually what we just saw and heard. I'm surprised they resign, but it's appropriate and scary, Tizzy, because I think about what they voted on, what they brought up, what they felt was just and for whom based on what they really think. And that is so scary. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I am too surprised that they resigned. But I mean, it's one of those weird things where I go, kind of gives me hope. Yeah. Makes me think that maybe, maybe some, you know, in places where we wouldn't expect people to learn a lesson and maybe do better. Maybe there's hope we can all, I believe we can all learn. I believe we can all change. No, well, I hope so. I don't know about the banks though. And I do want to say when we come back from this next break, what's in your wallet? Is that the slogan? Maybe we'll find out because there's going to be a freeze put on some people, some institutions for the way they do business. I'm Sharon Reed in for Dr. Rashad Ritchie. This is indisputable. We're right back.
Welcome back to Indisputable. I'm Sharon Reed in for Dr. Rashad Ritchie. Tiziant is our co-host today. And a lot of you are commenting about that 11 year old little boy who was shot by police. Call the police because a man was being aggressive with his mother, thought the police would help, was shot in the chest. We do have this from Gord Wilkes. How? How did this officer get confused in the situation? Or was this an intentional malicious act on the part of the officer? Night Eater cosigns and says, we're at the point where kids shouldn't even be advised to call cops. I don't know how you would argue with that observation, statement, declaration when we're seeing so much of this. How do you argue with that? I'll give you one more. Cynthia Moon says this about Representative Jeff McNeely losing that leadership role. What those racists can't stand is that people of color work hard and earn their place, whereas they haven't given to them. It causes a deep shame in them and they react with anger and more. It's hard for me to even evaluate that because that's never been my life. So I don't even know if that's what's going on here. I'm not even sure it matters, but it's an interesting point. And one, I'll think about, let marinate. This next one is pretty incredible, at least the numbers are. The numbers are jaw dropping. An influencer sells an AI version of herself. And she does get millions of dollars for this. I don't know if you've ever heard of this person, but it doesn't matter. Bank account is swollen. Karen Marjorie, age 23, an influencer with more than 1.8 million Snapchat followers, launched an AI-powered voice-based chatbot version of herself called Karen AI. She says it provides subscribers with some of the benefits of having a real-life companion and has already pulled in over 1,000 paying customers. Described as a virtual girlfriend, Karen AI charges $1 a minute to chat. Karen AI launched as a beta test earlier this month, generated $71,610 in revenue in about a week, almost entirely from men, Fortune reported, citing an income statement provided by the influencer's business manager. According to Karen AI's website, more than 2,000 hours were spent designing and coding the real life Marjorie's voice, behaviors, and personality into an immersive AI experience, which it says is available anytime and feels as if you're talking directly to Karen herself. It used now deleted videos from Marjorie's YouTube channel, layered it with OpenAI's GPT-4 API technology, Fortune reported. Influencer said Karen AI would allow her to communicate with more of her social media followers, adding that it's not currently possible for her to directly speak with each and every one of her followers. Marjorie told Fortune that she thought Karen AI could eventually bring in $5 million per month. Basing this on 20,000 of her 1.8 million Snapchat followers signing up for the service. Influencer also says, Karen AI is going to come and fill that gap, she told the magazine, adding 
that it might be able to cure loneliness. Karen AI will never replace me, she said. Karen AI is simply just an extension of me, an extension of my consciousness. Tizzy, I am not technically savvy. AI is something that I might have just heard of two weeks ago, okay? That's how far behind I am. Reading uh, this, I'm scared. Yeah, it's um, it's bizarre. Uh, Spike Jones made a movie several years back with Joaquin Phoenix mm. that was kind of about this. It was about like an operating system on a phone, kind of like Siri, only it interacted with you and asked about you and learned about you and talked to you, and then he fell in love with it. Um, and it feels like that's mm. the potential here. And on the surface, it's like it's harmless. If someone's lonely, like you know, her argument she makes, someone's lonely, and now they have someone who they feel like they interact with. But my mind also goes to how many real life relationships are going to be ruined. Like the girlfriend finds out that this guy is spending his evenings with Karen AI and talking to her, and they form intimate bonds on there. We've seen AI do some really odd things. The one that that Bing was using, um, you know, uh, threatened a reporter. Uh, that they were going to accuse them of committing murder when it uh, contradicted something that the AI had said. Another uh, person who interacted, it told them like, I, I feel like I'm falling for you. You should leave your wife for me. Wow. That's, that's <laughs> and I mean, fortunately, the people who were interacting were um, of sound mind and didn't like buy into that. They were like, oh, that's super weird of you to ask me to leave my wife. Um, but there are some people, like it's just it's too vast an unknown. Mm -hmm. Anyone who's watched like the Black Mirror series uh, knows like there's a bunch of stuff. Like if you had this thing, you know, say something or encourage someone to do something, and they they've installed parameters to not let it be violent or dangerous, you know, to not encourage violence or to accept that. But then we've seen things that it's not supposed to be able to do. We've seen it do them. So it's a very strange time. And I wonder, Tizzy, how long before you're not of sound mind, your program. Uber Eats has made it easy just to stay indoors, okay, door dash. <laughs> FaceTime, smartphones, that's nothing compared to this. I'll give you the last word. Yeah, no, Um. I mean, look. On the one hand, technology is great and anything that makes our life easier. On the other hand, I've seen Terminator and I've watched that robot foot crush wow. human skull. So I, I kind of don't want that to happen. Mm. Trump may not have to go on the campaign trail, Biden either. Just saying. Robot overlords. <laughs> wow. Well, we appreciate you always. Tizzy end. Video content creator extraordinaire, appreciate you always. Can't wait till you're back on the program. I'm Sharon Reed and for Dr. Rashad Ritchie who had today off, he's earned it.